You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. If you'd like to help support the show, you can find ways to do so at patreon.com slash piratehistorypodcast. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the study of history, it seems like important periods all tend to center around certain big events, events that can be used as a sort of shorthand when discussing or teaching about those periods in history. In many cases, those events serve as catalysts for everything that would come to follow. Take Martin Luther and the 95 Theses, for example. Were his semi-legendary actions of October 31st, 1517, were they the spark that set off the Protestant Reformation and subsequently the Renaissance? I mean, no. Reality is a lot more complex than that. The printing press was a far bigger influence than Martin Luther nailing some theses to a door, in part because the printing press was used to distribute those theses around Germany and the world, as well as the Bible, and... On that note, publishing a Bible in German or in English was just as revolutionary as anything that Martin Luther ever intended. Perhaps much more so. Martin Luther intended to have an internal scholarly debate. But all the same, his posting of the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door, which probably didn't happen, is seen as the event that sparked a century of radical change in Europe. And even if most historians don't actually see it that way, it's still usually taught that way, as a sort of shorthand. In terms of pirates, well, there are a lot more of these sort of huge, world-shaking events coming up in the future. So far in our story, though, the best example we have is Henry Morgan's Sack of Panama in 1671. But the most obvious examples of this sort of thing comes in terms of international warfare. And we have a bunch of examples of that. In U.S. military history alone, we have things like 9-11, the Gulf of Tonkin, Pearl Harbor, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, and the bombardment of Fort Sumter. And all of these events were important. But some of them were important because of the event itself, and some because the response that followed was such a big deal. Much like Luther and the 95 Theses, it was the fallout that changed the world, not the event itself. 
You know, no one's going to downplay the importance of 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. They are obvious attacks against national sovereignty that have to be answered. And honestly, Fort Sumter should probably be thrown in there as well. It was a clear declaration of open war against the government of the United States. The others, though, maybe, could be seen as less cataclysmic. Not to lessen the impact on the people that lost their lives in those situations, but, for example, was the response to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand equal to the actual events of that day? I think that when World War I is the result, the answer is obviously no. Of course, like Luther and the Theses, it wasn't really the assassination of Franz Ferdinand that started the war. In that era, Europe had often been called a powder keg. This assassination was the spark, but there was going to be a spark one way or another, and Europe was going to go to war. And of course, when it comes to the U.S. in World War I, we didn't really care about the crown prince of Austria-Hungary or yet another war between France and Germany, but it was still what began a war that we got involved in. And then, there is the case of the incident in the Gulf of Tonkin during the Vietnam War. There are plenty of conspiracy theories about really all of the events that we've mentioned so far. Those theories claim that things like 9-11 or Pearl Harbor were either false flag attacks or that they were given aid from people on our side to further their aims toward war. And you see this kind of thing a lot. The Reichstag fire in Nazi Germany, for example, it used to be generally accepted that agents within the Nazi party either actually set the fire themselves or arranged for the fire by conspiring with an actual communist revolutionary within Nazi Germany. And I love the story that that idea tells. A bunch of hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool Nazis telling a communist agitator that they secretly really hated Hitler and desperately wanted to see his regime fall, and they could help make it happen. They could ensure that the guards weren't there and leave the materials in place for him to go in and deal a severe blow. I think about a movie like that about double agents with a murky past who begin to question their own actions and their own loyalties. However, these days the view that the Reichstag was a false flag attack has been challenged, and pretty convincingly, but the narrative of a false flag attack still holds a place in people's minds. So even that conspiracy theory, which used to be accepted, is now being argued against. Holes are being poked in it. But in the Gulf of Tonkin, the conspiracy theory around that event is, well, it's not a conspiracy theory, it's conspiracy fact. See, in 1964, the U.S. was already involved in the war in Vietnam. We had been for years on one level or another, but it was all in a limited capacity. We're not talking about thousands of soldiers, we're talking about a few U.S. specialists going in to aid either the French or the Vietnamese troops there. But then, on the 2nd of August, 1964, an American boat was attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin. Sort of. There was a unit of U.S. gunships shelling a settlement on a nearby island when two or three North Vietnamese gunboats showed up. One of the U.S. ships, the commander, the Maddox, fired off three shots. Now they said, the crew and commander of the Maddox, that those three shots were warning shots. But the Johnson administration would later claim that those three shots never happened. A brief firefight broke out and ended pretty quickly. 
There was virtually no damage to any of the U.S. ships aside from one bullet hole in the superstructure of the Maddox. But then, two days later, on the 4th of August, a flurry of reports suddenly came into the Pentagon stating that another firefight had broken out, and this time it was serious. There were gunboats and submarines and dozens of torpedoes, all Soviet-made and commanded by the Vietnamese, and all of them were firing on the American vessels all at once. Again, the Maddox was in command. Back at the Pentagon, the Defense Secretary, Robert McNamara, was already busy firing off memos to the President and his generals and planning the counterstrike. But there's one big problem with all of that. That August 4th attack never happened. Within just a few minutes, the Pentagon learned that the subs and the torpedoes weren't there. They knew almost immediately that this attack hadn't taken place. Reportedly, these reports that initially came in were from what they called ghosts in the radar. But McNamara and President Johnson went ahead with their plan anyway. They acted as though that attack had taken place, and then they told the U.S. people and the Congress that a terrible attack had occurred against U.S. troops and that President Johnson had to be given full authority to oversee the war in Vietnam. Congress passed the Tonkin Resolution, and President Johnson was given that power. And this isn't just some wingnut conspiracy theory out there. This is from, first of all, the Pentagon Papers, which were written inside the Pentagon as a history and list of objectives for Vietnam, and then were leaked to the New York Times in 1971. Later, the New York Times would say that President Johnson, quote, systematically lied, not only to the public, but also to Congress, end quote. But you could still argue that they weren't valid, that leak may have been a forgery, but any doubts over their validity were dashed in 2011 when the Pentagon Papers were declassified. They went along with a report from a modern team of NSA historians who confirmed that the attack never happened, at least not like President Johnson and his administration said. In short, they confirmed that the Johnson administration lied. They fabricated a vicious attack and used that lie to go to war. Now that's an age-old tactic of those in power. People have been doing it ever since human beings fought wars. At one point in our story, not today, but later on, Spain will burn her own shipyards to get an excuse to fight the English. The gunpowder plot, when Guy Fox apparently tried to blow up the parliament, well, even that's been put into question again and again. And then, in 1608, England may have done the same thing in the Mediterranean. This is episode 96, The War Against the Corsairs. Let's take a step back to the inciting incident in question here, in 1608. It was that attack, or series of attacks, against two English merchantmen, the Charity and the Pearl. Looking back on those attacks, from today we have only one document to go off of. It was a letter written by an English sea captain, the captain of the Charity, from Lisbon. Charity and Pearl, though, well, they were small ships. Generally, they were inconsequential in the vast sea of merchant trading in the Mediterranean. And, well, they were far from the first to suffer at the hands of Mediterranean pirates. Their crews absolutely went through a harrowing experience, but certainly not a unique one. So why did that attack, or those attacks, why did they set off a chain of events that almost shut down English shipping in the Mediterranean? 
The Dutch and the French as well halted or slowed their shipping for some time. But why was it this attack? Why not the capture of dozens of other ships by Barbary pirates throughout the decades? Now it might be that the captains responsible for these raids, namely Ward and Danziker and their underlings, were European. Perhaps, to England and the Netherlands, that seemed like evidence of a serious pirate problem rather than just, you know, the barbarous nature of those in Barbary. But if so, why Charity and Pearl? Why not the capture of Little John, or as it was known then, John Baptist, or the capture of York Bonaventure? Why not any of a number of other ships taken by European pirates in the previous few years? I'd like you to think about the possibility although an unlikely possibility, that the attacks on Charity and Pearl were overblown, or maybe even falsified. No, I don't think that's the case, but, well, look at that first incident in the Gulf of Tonkin on August 2, 1964. President Johnson almost had the excuse he needed to get deeper into Vietnam, but not quite. An American ship fired first and then sustained virtually no damage, and that wasn't exactly going to get the people whipped up into a war frenzy. In much the same fashion, yet another pirate raid against yet another merchant ship was nothing new and nothing to really fear, nothing to go to war over, certainly. It was merely the cost of doing business. Now, you might think that thousands of European Christians being captured and enslaved over the decades would be reason enough, but... That was left mostly to local churches and religious organizations. But what about a really terrible raid? What about two ships that were attacked three times by almost a dozen different pirate vessels in only five days? What about taking their guns and their food and one of their ships and leaving them most likely to die? What about the inability of five armed merchant vessels to stop the pirate Danziker? That's certainly much worse than just another run-of-the-mill pirate raid. I mean, imagine you had a husband or a father or a son sailing on a merchant vessel in the Mediterranean, and then a pamphlet came out entitled News from the Sea. It described the barbarous and vile lifestyle of the pirates, and then it printed a letter detailing the many attacks on two small merchant ships in only a few days. Wouldn't you suddenly be very interested in the Barbary pirates? I mean, this letter made it seem like it was a nightmare out there, wouldn't you demand that the king do something about it? If your husband or son was out there, who knows what might happen to him? That sounds to me like time for a war. Now, I'm not going to dispute the validity of that letter written by the captain here. I will strongly hint at the suggestion, but I really don't even have to do that, because Venice was asking all of those questions for me, including Zorzi Giustinian and the Senate. I will, though... I will ask if the response to the capture of Charity and Pearl was equal to the attack that the letter described. Even if every word in that letter were completely true in every single respect, the Venetians saw this letter, and more importantly the response to it, as a clandestine threat to their command of trade in the Mediterranean. Now I know that the Venetians throughout this show might look kind of paranoid with their reaction to both this event and their later reaction to the capture of Rainieri Soderina. And Zorzi Giustinian was given to paranoid flights of fancy. But on a national level, is it paranoia if it happens to be true? Both England and the Netherlands were both very interested in those Venetian-held trading routes, 
and they had large, new fleets of trading vessels that they wanted to put to use. And they were allowed to trade on them, but they had to pay taxes and tariffs on it. Now, I understand this is all looking very episode one here, you know, the taxation of trade routes is a very serious affair, Chancellor, so I'll stay away from all of that. But Venice was in the crosshairs, or at least the trade routes controlled by Venice were in the crosshairs of England and the Netherlands, and Venice knew it. So they said that any English naval presence in the Mediterranean, even if it was ostensibly to deal with English pirates, would be seen by them as an act of war. So England backed off, for a minute at least. Then the Soderina was captured, and everyone started gearing up to go to war in the Mediterranean again. We talked about all this at some length, you know. Venice was saying that Ward had to be stopped, and if the English stopped them from stopping Ward, they would go to war. And the English were saying that Ward had to be stopped, and if the Venetians stopped them from stopping them, they would go to war. You know, it was a lot of ridiculous back and forth. But things did look like war for a minute, until, suddenly, John Ward sank off the coast of Greece in waters owned by Venice. And Venice just said, oh my, look at that, I don't know what happened over there. However, here are two Italian sailors with a surprisingly detailed account of the entire affair. So war was averted there, and Venice held on to her trading routes. But that didn't stop the problem of the pirates, they were still out there. And Venice was woefully unequipped to deal with them. And if they couldn't do it, and they wouldn't allow England, or probably even the Dutch to do it, who was going to deal with the pirates? And it was about this time in our story that John Ward was converting to Islam and then forced to leave Tunis for Algiers. When he arrived, that brought all the major pirates in Barbary to the city of Algiers. John Ward and at least most of his followers. That means Sir Francis Verney was there. That means Bill Graves was there. That means Richard Bishop and Anthony Johnson and probably Captain Foxley and his comrades, among a lot of others whose names we don't know. And of course, Simon Danziker was there with his followers. Now, we haven't really talked much about the people following Danziker, but they were mostly Dutch, and they made up the next generation of Barbary pirates. Pirates like Simon Martsoon Stroit and Grote Piet, or Big Pete, and Simon Danziker the Younger, Simon Danziker's son. And that's only scratching the surface. There were dozens of pirate ships after Ward and his folk arrived, crowding the harbor of Algiers all at one time. The Pasha may have been less inclined to execute Jack Ward now that he was known as Yusuf Rais, but that was still an awful lot of European sea rovers and brigands infesting his home and complicating trade. It was a complicated situation, but things were about to get a lot more complicated when a fleet of warships appeared on the horizon. As it happened, despite the threats from Venice, England and the Netherlands had mobilized a strike team of warships to sail for Barbary. But they didn't get there. The English fleet, at least, was stopped outside the Strait of Gibraltar, near southern Spain. Spain didn't have a dog in the fight to come, but... Should a war occur, they would certainly get dragged in. And they really didn't want to get dragged in. Philip III, the King of Spain, was also King of Naples, Sicily, Sardinia, and the Duke of Milan. 
plus, you know, Portugal and basically the rest of the world at that point. But you might notice that all of those kingdoms I mentioned at first were in the Mediterranean. They were all Italian. And if a naval war broke out between England and Venice, well, who knows what might happen to the rest of Italy, which he basically owned. So the fleet, the English fleet, was stopped outside the Channel. The King of Spain wouldn't let them in. Now, the English weren't happy with that situation, but what exactly could they do against the naval might of Spain here? Instead, as a sort of a balm, the Spanish navy told them that they would deal with the pirates. However, the Spanish did allow in another fleet, a combined fleet from Amsterdam, Middleburg, and Vlissingen. They were allowed to pass the strait and enter the Mediterranean, and they were there to deal with the pirates as well. Now, the Venetians weren't happy about that either, and they suspected that Spain had just pulled a fast one. The Venetians believed that the Dutch fleet was there not only to deal with the pirates, but to establish trade relations with Barbary and Morocco. And they weren't exactly wrong there. Venice believed the reason Spain had done so was to allow the Dutch in, let them make those trade relationships, and then retake the Netherlands once their truce had ended and what would be known as the Eighty Years' War began again. And they might not have been wrong about that. I mean, the Spanish were going to try and retake the Netherlands, they just failed to do so. But those Dutch ships, they weren't the fleet that arrived in Algiers in 1609. Do you remember a while back, we talked about an English knight, a privateer, MP, diplomat, writer, and traveler named Sir Anthony Shirley? He was imprisoned by King James I, and... Well, the Parliament saw his imprisonment as illegal, and it was one of the reasons that they drafted up the form of apology and satisfaction to rebuke James I. Well, after he was released from his wrongful imprisonment, Shirley left, feeling essentially exiled from England. So he knew something of John Ward's displeasure with his home country, and Shirley was also very well acquainted with the Muslim world. He'd traveled extensively through the Muslim world, from the Ottoman Empire all the way to Persia. And actually, in Persia, he would be made a prince and given exclusive trading rights, and finally, made an ambassador to Moscow, Prague, and Rome. So he was a former privateer, an exile from England, and he had close ties to the Muslim world. So, Shirley was uniquely suited to speak with John Ward. They had a lot in common. That's why, when Anthony Shirley wrote John Ward a letter, he attempted to dissuade him from piracy and what Shirley called a villainous life. Now, Ward wanted nothing to do with all of that. It probably didn't help that when Sir Anthony Shirley wrote that letter, he was writing from Naples in his position as Admiral of King Philip III's Mediterranean fleet. It probably also didn't help that the letter from Shirley to Ward was brought by a Spanish officer under a flag of truce, sailing from a fleet that had just arrived and was currently blockading the harbor in which Ward was sitting. That letter was drawn up in the wake of the Soderina disaster, when Spain finally decided to deal with the pirates. King Philip told those English ships that they couldn't pass the channel, but he did task Sir Anthony, an Englishman, with dealing with them. So, Shirley outfitted a fleet and prepared to set sail on the hunt, when, 
Well, he probably learned that all the pirates, including Ward, were gathered together in Algiers. More on that in a moment. But it was his fleet, Anthony Shirley's fleet, a Spanish fleet from Naples, that sailed on Algiers. Although Shirley wasn't there, he wasn't in acting command. That honor went to a man named Don Luis Fiascardio. Shirley, though, was Fiascardio's boss back in Naples. However, Fiascardio did see that the letter was delivered and got Ward's reply. What appears to have happened here is that Sir Anthony tried to lure Ward away over to Spain's side, or, probably more specifically, to his side. If Sir Anthony could talk John Ward into leaving the pirate life as well as the Muslim world behind, it would be a major political move, and if he could talk him into joining his side... That would give Sir Anthony a powerful ally. And who knows here, with Sir Anthony's contacts in England, where he'd spent some time in prison, as well as Venice, where he'd spent some time in prison, and Persia, where he was a high official, and he'd spent some time in prison, and the Ottoman Empire, where he'd spent, you know, a few days in prison, not to mention his current friends in Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, well, if Sir Anthony had all of those contacts and the ally in John Ward, he might be able to do something truly bold. Maybe, with the Spanish fleet and all of his new former pirate friends, Sir Anthony could sail for Morocco and intercede in the Civil War. Maybe he could set himself up as governor of Morocco for Spain. Or maybe he could sail for Tunis, Tripoli, or Algiers and oust the local pasha there. Maybe he could set himself up as governor there, or, if he was bold enough, maybe even as a king of a newly established nation stolen from the Ottomans. Now that's all wild speculation, but it would be super cool, wouldn't it? Regardless, whatever his plans may or may not have been, John Ward had no intention to leave his pirate ways behind. So, as per Sir Anthony's orders... Don Luis Fiascardio ordered the blockade of Algiers begun. Now, there was an initial bout of fighting when the Spanish fleet arrived, and their intentions became clear. Zyman Danziker was the admiral of the Algerian navy, so he wouldn't have wasted precious resources on attempting a direct strike against the Spanish, but he would have ordered a few ships to sail in and engage them. See, the Algerian navy was a privateer navy, much like Port Royal some 65 years later, the privateers offered a sort of protection, but asking them to engage in a frontal assault against superior odds was unlikely to work out. Now, the Pasha did have a few round ships designed by Danziker, but they weren't enough to take on a small fleet of Spanish galleons. They had guns at the fort as well, but they were a bit too far from the Spanish to be of any use, unless the Spanish came in close. But that initial bout of fighting was instigated to allow a few ships to escape. Very likely, the Pasha wanted word sent out to Tunis and Tripoli, and probably Alexandria and even Istanbul, that he was under attack in Algiers. And then, Danziker and John Ward wanted to get a few ships out as well. Now, we don't know who he sent out, but whoever they were... They must have been that rare blend of expendable and invulnerable that makes for a perfect henchman, the sort of person who was able to get past the blockade and any patrols they might find in a small, quick vessel, but that would not be missed during the blockade should it come to battle. 
So the pirates engaged the Spanish fleet, kept their attention diverted until those small ships were well beyond the horizon. Then they pulled back into the harbor of Algiers and set to wait out the blockade. Don Luis had an impressive fleet there at Algiers. He was himself a skilled and honored commander at the head of at least half a dozen fully armed Spanish galleons. Now, you know, that's not a wartime fleet, but combined with the smaller craft he had along with him, it was plenty to keep the pirates from escaping. But I do sort of wonder what Don Luis's plan was here. It's been suggested that the Spanish, Don Luis in particular, as well as his boss, Sir Anthony, didn't expect to find all of these pirates here in Algiers. They may have been chasing someone, one of Danziker's men maybe, or even Danziker himself, when they arrived at Algiers to find the harbor not only with a few pirate vessels, as they expected, but filled with pirate vessels. That force, combined with the guns from the fort of Algiers, would be far too much for the Spanish to take the harbor, let alone take the city, so they wouldn't be able to destroy the pirates here, but they could blockade the harbor. I tend to like that point of view, because if they did know what was going on in Algiers, all of these pirates assembled there, I wonder why they didn't team up with that Dutch fleet, maybe toss in the English that were left waiting at the strait, or maybe invite the Venetian navy to come join. A force like that could wipe up that pirate problem in an afternoon, and take Algiers in not much more time than that. I mean, I know why they did it. You know, the Spanish weren't exactly on good terms with England or the Netherlands or Venice. And then there were the diplomatic concerns to take into account when attacking a city that was still technically ruled by the Sultan. But even without those problems, assume they did destroy the pirates and take Algiers, well, what would they do with the city when they got it? You know, if everyone here had been friendly and Catholic, like it was a crusade, they might have gifted the city to the Pope and made it sort of a crusader state, a Christian stronghold to check the power of Islam. But no one here but Spain was going to go along with something like that. Not Venice, not France, not the Netherlands, not England. So everyone here, the Spanish fleet and the Dutch and English pirates, waited around for something to happen. A blockade of this sort wasn't a siege. No one was going to starve or run out of water. They could get their food from inland as well as their water. But for a seaport, economically speaking at least, a blockade could be almost as deadly. But while they're waiting for something to happen, and we're waiting along with them, let's switch gears here. Far away from Barbary and... A couple of hundred years from 1609, we're going to look at Newfoundland in modern-day Canada. It was found, or colonized, by the English explorer John Cabot, who had a charter from King Henry VII to, quote, "...sail to all parts, countries, and seas of the east, the west, and of the north, under our banner and ensign to set up our banner on any new-found land." End quote. Cabot did as he was ordered, and, on what was probably the first uncharted territory he visited, he gave it the name Newfoundland, Newfoundland. But the Treaty of Tordesillas was only a couple of years old when this happened, and the Portuguese were still taking it seriously, 
and England was still Catholic and didn't want to go against a papal bull like the Treaty of Tordesillas, so they handed it on over to Portugal. But then, in 1585, England wasn't Catholic anymore, and Portugal was part of Spain, and England was at war with Spain, and Queen Elizabeth really wanted some colonies, especially if she could take them from the Spanish. Bernard Drake was a privateer and seafarer from Devon, in the west of England. We haven't talked about him before, but we have talked about Francis Drake, a young man from Devon who smote the Spanish and circumnavigated the globe, and who Queen Elizabeth granted a coat of arms in the form of a red dragon on a white background. That sigil, though, already belonged to somebody named Drake, Bernard Drake, and Bernard was very clear that he wasn't related to Francis Drake, so Drake couldn't have that sigil. I mean, what the heck, you're just going to give it away? He was upset by this. But Queen Elizabeth gave away the sigil anyway. But then Elizabeth sent Francis out to attack the Spanish New World in a preemptive strike in a war that had just begun. But in that same year, 1585, Elizabeth tasked another of her gentleman adventurers, Sir Walter Raleigh, and his Roanoke Company with claiming land in North America. Now Bernard Drake was related to Raleigh, distantly, by marriage. I mean, obviously the two Drakes here were related, they shared a name and almost a hometown. But, you know, you can't just go about claiming a man's sigil because you sailed around the globe. You know, it's not that hard. Anyone could do that. I would totally do that, but, you know, I've got to go to Newfoundland over here. In fact, it's very possible that Bernard Drake was more closely related to Francis than to Walter Raleigh. But he and Raleigh went along to Newfoundland, and Bernard Drake led a raid against the Spanish colony there. One report on the raid read, quote, The voyage was both successful and profitable, beginning with the capture of a Portuguese ship laden with Brazilian sugar. Once at Newfoundland, Drake, meaning Bernard Drake, captured both Spanish and Portuguese fishing ships. He joined forces with George Raymond, and they seized ships coming from the West Indies with cargoes of sugar, wine, and ivory, and a French ship carrying some gold. In all, they probably took more than 20 ships. The voyage likely returned a profit of at least 600%. As their share, Drake and his eldest son John were given four of the most valuable ships by Raleigh and Sir John Gilbert. End quote. This was a fairly impressive privateer raid, and one of Elizabeth's earliest victories against Spain in the Anglo-Spanish War. Newfoundland became, well... It became an important colony to the English. It was a home to many, many English adventurers and privateers. It had been a fishery for the Spanish, producing salted cod to feed their navy. For that reason alone, it was strategically important to Spain, but England had plenty of other places to produce salted cod. Newfoundland was far away from any other Spanish or Portuguese colonies. I'm fairly certain that St. Augustine in Florida was the closest. See, due to wind patterns in the Atlantic, for the Spanish to get from Spain to Newfoundland, they would have to sail north and west through English waters. So, the Spanish had a difficult time getting to what was strategically not the most important location in their war. Because of this, Newfoundland became a haunt for adventurers and privateers who had an interest in either the Atlantic coast of North America or the West Indies. It was 
sort of like a safe house for people who were moving down into Virginia or Carolina or even further south. One of these adventurers during the Anglo-Spanish War was a young man named Peter Easton, also called Peter Eston. Easton was a privateer who operated mostly out of Newfoundland. He started off as just a sailor, but by the end of the Anglo-Spanish War, he was a captain with a number of loyal commanders under him, something of a privateer admiral. He'd press-ganged hundreds of local, mostly Portuguese, fishermen into what was a fairly impressive fleet for a privateer. He used Newfoundland as a home base from which to travel, well, mostly he traveled south to the West Indies. Easton, you know, he wasn't the first privateer to follow Francis Drake's lead and raid the Spanish in the West Indies, but he was perhaps the most prominent to do so since Drake. But he didn't capture trains of silver, you know, he took the silver when he could, but mostly he captured supplies that were much needed by the colonists along the Atlantic coast. He was a little bit revered, by some of those colonists for bringing them supplies that they otherwise wouldn't have had access to, but he wasn't playing Robin Hood here. They did have to pay for the supplies. However, he did keep them from starving on many occasions. And then, much like everyone in our current story, Easton's privateering license was revoked when James I took the throne. Now, men like Ward complied to this at first. Most of them did. They joined the Navy. But then they saw how awful life in the Navy was, so they went pirate. But Easton just kept up with his work. He knew it was illegal to continue privateering, but he didn't really care. He continued capturing Spanish shipping and selling the goods wherever it was needed. Perhaps he just enjoyed the money, or perhaps he considered it his responsibility. Perhaps he realized how much the people on the Atlantic coast would suffer without what he was doing. But he was named a pirate, and a price was put on his head. So Easton decided to get a little revenge on the English government. He continued raiding the Spanish, but he started selling goods not only to English colonists, but to Irish rebels on the west coast of Ireland, the same Irish pirates that fought under Grace O'Malley at one point. And those Irishmen welcomed Easton. They happily took the goods he traded, and all of them went to the war effort, and they even taught Easton some of their better smuggling and hunting spots around the British Isles. Which is kind of a big deal. You know, these were trade secrets that had belonged to some time to, you know, sort of a guild of Irish pirates. So Peter Easton made use of all these new trade secrets and pretty quickly became the most prominent pirate operating in English waters. He continued attacking Spanish ships and then moved up to French vessels and finally started taking English ships as well. And it was around that time when Peter Easton was becoming really prominent that another pirate arrived in those Irish waters and made contact with Easton. His name was Tybalt Saxbridge, and he came, most recently, from Barbary. Saxbridge was one of Ward's men, or at least an associate of John Ward's. Now, I don't know why he was this far from Tunis, but it's fortunate that he was. He and Easton joined forces, and they ravaged shipping in the Channel and in the North Sea. 
they became something of a dream team there in England, or maybe a nightmare team if you were a member of the Navy or a merchant. But they were back there off the coast of Ireland when another pirate arrived with dire news. Probably. Now, there's not really any evidence of this, but it's, to me, sort of the only thing that makes sense. What we can say did happen is that Easton and Saxbridge and their fleet sailed from England to Barbary very quickly at just the right time to find Algiers and the pirates there under siege. Now, they might have left England for totally unrelated reasons. Maybe the Royal Navy was closing in. Maybe they heard about the Sodorina sinking and believed that Ward was dead and thought to make themselves, you know, the next English pirate lords of the Mediterranean. But that's kind of unlikely because it would have taken a lot of time for that sort of word to reach England. I think it's most likely that John Ward was able to get word to them of his predicament on one of those ships that he sent out. So they rushed to Algiers. And when they arrived there, remember these men were smugglers as much as pirates. They were able to smuggle word ashore that they were planning to help the pirates escape Algiers. Now, the fleet of Easton and Saxbridge was large. It was one of the more substantial pirate fleets in the world. But it wasn't defeat a Spanish strike force large. But they had a plan, probably Easton's plan. But that plan required Ward and Danziker and Pasha Redouan to all get on board. Of course, they were more than willing to. Shortly before dawn, a few days after they arrived, the fleet under Saxbridge and Easton sailed in toward the harbor of Algiers, silently, as silently as possible. Simon Danziker, Big Pete, John Ward, Bill Graves, Richard Bishop, Francis Verney, all the rest of the pirates were ready for this. They were already aboard their own ships with the guns primed and loaded. The soldiers, under Redouan inside the fort of Algiers Harbor, had their own cannon at the ready, and everyone in Algiers, ready to fight, was waiting with bated breath. Then Saxbridge gave the order to fire. Every ship in his pirate fleet opened up with a volley of great shot intended to decimate the sleeping Spanish vessels. Now, normally, the Spanish would have just fired back here. They could have overwhelmed the pirates there quickly. However, as soon as Saxbridge opened fire, the pirates under Ward, many of those that had been under blockade, well, they made their way behind the Spanish ships. Picture the blockade something like this. The harbor at Algiers has a narrow opening opening up into a large bay. The Spanish fleet had their ships arrayed perpendicular to that opening. Their guns were pointed at the harbor mouth and out to sea. Anyone who arrived or tried to escape the harbor would be in range of their guns. But when they were all focused out to sea, at the fleet of Saxbridge and Easton, John Ward sailed up to the east and got in behind their vessels. Then he opened fire on the Spanish from the rear, and this put the Spanish into a sort of a pincer move, if an imperfect one, although purposefully imperfect. The Spanish weren't able to move into position to fire on John Ward. If they did so, they would leave themselves open to fire from Saxbridge, and they were already vulnerable to fire from John Ward. If they ordered half of their ships to focus on Ward and the other half to focus on Saxbridge and his pirates, 
their fleet would be cut in half and they would be slowly losing a battle of attrition. So they had two options. First, they could sail for the harbor. That was the fastest mode of escape and may have been the safest looking. Second, they could sail away from Ward and Saxbridge, out to the west, and away from Algiers. Now, that was a more dangerous move. It would leave them under fire for longer. So, they initially made for the harbor. At least, some of their ships started heading in that direction. But Don Luis thought better of that. And that was a good move on his part. See, the guns in the Fort at Algiers were already loaded, ready to fire should the Spanish come in range. And Simon Danziker and all of his Dutch pirates were waiting in the harbor and prepared to force the Spanish, once they sailed into the harbor, directly into range of the fort's guns. That would have been a slaughter. But the Spanish commander saw through that and ordered his ships to leave through the one direction that they were left, the water of Algiers and the blockade against the pirates for good. This was a quick, almost surgical strike. It showed the kind of tactics that the pirates were capable of when they had the numbers. Minimal damage was done to the Spanish shipping, but the Spanish sailors had been under such a barrage so quickly that their will and morale and maybe even some of their good sense just left them. Ward and Danziker, along with all the rest of the pirates of Barbary that were all gathered in Algiers Harbor, won a victory and chased them off. Now, that was a better position than they'd been in in weeks. You know, it's better to have no enemies blockading the harbor than some enemies blockading the harbor. But, in a way, this took their position from bad to worse. As it turns out, well, Algiers had been home for the past few weeks of hundreds or maybe even a few thousand pirates. All of them were stuck in the city and unable to leave, so tensions had begun to mount. Normally, pirates would be going out on voyages and making money to buy things in town, but instead, they ran out of money very quickly but still consumed whatever they pleased, mostly on credit. In normal times, in Algiers, there would have been a fraction of Danziker's fleet gallivanting around town, drinking heavily and looking for a good time. But for all of these weeks that the city had been under blockade, there were almost triple the number of his men growing bored and, you know, running low on wine. It became an expensive and occasionally violent problem. During the blockade, the pirates and many of the locals clashed a number of times, and the Pasha was growing tired of the situation. But he couldn't you know, ask them to leave because there was a Spanish blockade out there, and he couldn't arrest the pirates because, first of all, they were the only thing guarding his harbor, and second, there were way too many of them for him to arrest. Had he attempted to do so, or even started arresting a few pirates who got really out of line, the chances of order breaking down into civil disobedience and perhaps his overthrow were growing high. But now that the Spanish were gone, Pasha Redouan made it clear to Danziker and Ward that he wanted these pirates out of his city and his harbor. Danziker and his men were more than welcome to come back after they had captured some prizes of worth. Pasha Redouan would buy them, and he would consider buying prizes or goods from Ward if they were particularly nice. 
but until such time as they had something to contribute to the city, the pirates were kicked out. And, you know, they were ready to leave anyway, they didn't want to stick around any longer, but they realized that Algiers, much like Tunis, might not be as friendly as it had been. So they gathered in the harbor there at Algiers and discussed their plans. Next time, we're going to talk about what may have been the greatest event of this era of the Pirates of Barbary, and then we're going to begin to draw this story toward its close. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everyone who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody who has donated to the show through the website or recommended this show to your friends and family. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this, so thank you. If you'd like to help support the show, the best way to do so is to become a patron at patreon.com slash piratehistorypodcast. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight